Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew, chapter 20, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to begin by reading from the first 16 verses of Matthew 20. So Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Three things I should have noted before, or well, two of them I should have. One of them is that in the first service, Brianna Brubaker signed the uh, membership book. So she, she has been a member for a long time, but a baby, COVID, and her work schedule kept her from signing the book. But uh, it was good to pray for her this morning in the 8.30 service. Secondly, if you're interested in uh, joining, there'll be a membership class sometime late September, I believe, and it should be announced soon in the e-bulletin that comes out on Friday. So um, that would be great. And uh, that's it. I think that's, that's good enough. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Uh, follow along as I read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, your translation might say the third hour, uh, it's nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out about noon the sixth hour, and about three, the ninth hour, in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, one hour before quitting time, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Odd. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, uh, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. As we have been walking these many months through the Gospel of Matthew, we have always done so with an eye on the end of the book, the last few verses where Jesus commissions his disciples and sends them out. I think Matthew ended his Gospel that way because many of the themes of the Gospel are contained in it. He commissions his disciples, sends them out, and we have taken up that commission ourselves. Look at those verses again, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You're very familiar with them. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those four themes that we've been tracing through Matthew. Jesus has all authority over all nations. 
He is worthy of all of our allegiance. He told his disciples, obey everything I have commanded you, all of my commands. And he's always with us. My children think that always with us is cheating, but that's the way it goes. All authority over all nations. He's worthy of all of our allegiance and he's always with us. It's that third one, all allegiance, that I want to think about uh, with you this afternoon, that this, this morning, that this parable points to. Why is it that followers of Jesus follow him faithfully? Why do disciples follow him all of his commands? I want to get at the issue a little bit from the side door this morning. I want to talk to you about how to be a miserable disciple. Uh, some of you already have that down. <laughs> Others of you, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian because you've seen too many miserable Christians. This is a parable that Jesus told where he compares the kingdom of heaven to a workers in a vineyard. And Matthew wants us to view things through their eyes, to think about what they experience, maybe to uh, not just listen in, but put ourselves in their shoes too. Have you ever seen, uh, if, if a company ever receives this award, they brag about it endlessly, so I'm sure you have, uh, uh, one, uh, a company named one of the best places to work in Pennsylvania? I'm not sure who does this work, but they go in and I, presumably they survey the employees of this company. Are you happy here? Do you, uh, is your pay fair? Are you treated with respect? Are there opportunities for your advancement in this company? Do you like what you do? Uh, is, are, are your coworkers, is there collegiality between uh, the coworkers? This is a great place to work. If a company is ever named one of the 50 best places to work in Pennsylvania, you know they advertise like crazy. Next year, our church is going to vie for it, so that'll be good. <laughs> is, is the church of Jesus Christ a happy place to serve? Is Jesus a good boss? Well, here's three ways to be a miserable uh, disciple. Number one, focus on what God owes you. Spend your time focusing on what God owes you. When we get to Matthew 20 here, this parable that Jesus told, we're about 80% through a series of conversations that Jesus had uh, that has overlapping themes. And the first conversation he has is with a, a man we call the rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus and he thought he was, uh, he had everything together pretty well. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he's got authority, he's got everything, except he wanted a little bit of assurance, so he came to Jesus and he said, um, what should I do to ensure that I have eternal life? I've, I've got a good life going, I've got good things going on in my life, but I'm just looking for maybe that capstone thing, that one thing that I can do that can really push me over the top. And Jesus makes a demand of him that he does not make of other people in the Gospels. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to go and sell everything you own, and, and uh, then you come follow me and uh, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, then come follow me, and you'll have great reward. And the man went away sad, the scripture says, because he had many possessions. It's a warning to us about wealth. This week, I listened to an interview uh, with Mez McConnell. Mez McConnell is a name worth knowing. He has, uh, currently, he is church planting in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the cities in Scotland. Mez is Scottish by birth. And he grew up in one of these. In Scotland, they call them schemes. In America, we call them projects. Um, 
public housing. And like some of our projects in our country, the schemes where Mes McConnell works in Scotland are riddled with crime and drugs and uh, uh, just blistering poverty. Mez was in prison, and uh, as a teenager, he was released early uh, on condition, on one condition that he lived with this volunteer, this man who had volunteered, who was himself a Christian, invited Mez to come into his house. And one weekend, uh, the group that this man was a part of, the church, invited Mez as a teenager to go on their teenage retreat, their uh, Christian retreat that they were having. And Mez was not a Christian, but he owed some money to a drug dealer in town and thought this was a great way to get out of town for the weekend. So he went with them on this retreat, and while he was there in the library at this retreat center, he found Matthew Henry's one-volume commentary on the Bible. Matthew Henry was a Puritan writer and wrote that one-volume beast. If you, uh, the best way to read it is not in bed. If you fall asleep, it will fall and kill you. So don't do that. Uh, but Mez McConnell started reading Matthew Henry's commentary, started on page one and read all the way through, and by the time he got to Romans, he understood the gospel and became a follower of Jesus. Matthew Henry hasn't had a convert in a long time, but Mez McConnell's one of his. Uh, Mez McConnell, uh, after he became a Christian, he uh, went to seminary, then um, started working in a ministry. He did not start in the schemes where he is today. He, in fact, started working in an upper class uh, church in Scotland. And he made an interesting observation about the students that were in his ministry. He said, you know what distinguishes the students in the schemes, in the projects, from the students in this upper class, uh, wealthy congregation is not their level of righteousness. They're both miserable sinners. But in this upper class congregation, their money enables them or allows them to hide their spiritual poverty. It covers it over. It, it allows you to mask over and not see necessarily your spiritual bankruptcy. And that's a warning that the Bible repeats over and over to us about money. Money's not the only thing that can hide your spiritual condition from you. It, 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 it could be your good looks or your talent or pleasure in your life or your intelligence or your charm. But money is one of those things that can keep us from seeing our true spiritual condition. Now, Peter heard this discussion, and his ears perked up when Jesus said rewards. Because Peter thinks to himself, I, I've left everything to follow you. What's in it for me? And Jesus answers in two ways. First, he says, God is generous. Whatever you leave, Peter, God will repay up to 100 times. You don't have to worry about that. But he also tells Peter and the disciples who were listening in this parable, Peter's the sort of guy, I don't know if the expression was written for him, but it applies. If you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Peter's the sort of guy who, if he was a middle school student, he would make enforcing the dress code hard. That's the way Peter is. And, 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 and Jesus um, told this parable to warn Peter, yes, I'm talking about rewards, and yes, God is generous, but don't focus on what God owes you or what you think God owes you. The parable is about a landowner, a landowner who has a grapes uh, as a vineyard and has grapes that are ready to be harvested. And, and to get peak uh, um, uh, juice from those uh, grapes, I say juice because we're a Baptist church, they're not going to make wine, of course. But to get peak, peak juice from those grapes, you've got to, you've got to pick them 
fast and just the right moment. So he goes out and hires some extra laborers for his vineyard, day laborers. 6 a.m. he goes and gets a crew and they come. Then, because, I don't know, maybe a storm's coming, the work isn't progressing as fast as he thinks it should, he goes back to the marketplace at 9 o'clock to hire some more. Then he does it at noon, he does it at 3, he goes back at 5 o'clock and finds some desperate guys who haven't been able to get a job all day long, and he sends them to do an hour's work in his vineyard. And notice what you're, what you're supposed to notice about this parable is how things change in the hiring process. In verse 2, the 6 a.m. hires... He agrees to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his vineyard. There's negotiation that goes on. How much are you going to pay me? I'll pay a denarius. Okay, denarius is fine. That's good. A denarius was a good, if not generous, salary for a day's work. But with the rest of the workers, starting with the nine o'clock workers, there's no negotiation. He just says, I will pay you whatever is right, verse four. And then when it comes to the five o'clock workers, there's no mention of, of money at all. He's, he just tells him, verse 7, you also go and work in my vineyard. And then at the end of the day, they receive their pay. Now, just as an aside for just a moment, notice in this parable here, God himself is represented as the landlord and the, the, the vineyard is, is uh, his, his work. And notice how the landlord, what does he spend his day doing? sending people into his work, calling people and sending them to do his work. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had instructed us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest field. Notice here in this parable, God himself is in the process. God calls his people and he calls them into his work. People like you, God has work for you to do and, and he calls you to it. Well, that, that's just an aside. We're supposed to focus here on the end of the day when evening comes and it's time to pay the workers. And we're supposed to think about those 6 a.m. workers and their grumbling, complaining. We can tell that's, that's the focus because the landlord gives this unusual instruction, pay the last ones hired first. And, and you know what happens here. The 5 p.m. workers, the, the workers who worked one hour, come to the table to get their pay. And what would be fair if a denarius is, is a, a, a good day's wage? What would be fair for working an hour? Well, to their surprise, surprise and everybody's surprise, they get a denarius. If you were a 6 a.m. worker watching the one-hour workers get a denarius, what would you be thinking? I would be doing some math. I'd be sitting there thinking to myself, well, let's see. If they worked one hour and got one denarius, I worked 12 hours. How much am I going to get? 12 denarii. That's how the math works. Woohoo! This is going to be a great day. <laughs> hmm. Then the 3 p.m. workers go. They worked three hours. They got one denarius, too. Ah, oh, the math gets a little harder. If three hours of work gets you one denarius, 12 hours of work gets you four denarii. Ho, 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 ho. This is great. Still, I mean, significant pay from 12 down, cut down from 12 to four, but four is still pretty good. Then the noon workers, they get one denarius too, and I'm doing the math. Six hours of work equals one denarius, so 12 hours of work, I should get two denarii, all right? Then the 9 a.m. workers get one denarius too, 
<laughs> Nine hours of work equals one denarius. Twelve hours of work should get me one and one-third denarii. And then the 6 a.m. workers, though, come, and to their shock, they get one denarius too. Did you forget that that's what you negotiated for? They're, they're mad. Don't you remember that's what you negotiate? You got everything out of this deal that you negotiated for. What does God owe you? Uh, what does God owe you for all that you've done for Jesus' sake? All those meals you've made for sick people after surgery, after having babies, after losing someone, you make meals, you take it over, over and over and over again. You've passed out so many casseroles, it's astounding. What does God owe you for that? What does God owe you for all those Sunday school lessons you've taught or all those late night meetings you've endured, all that lawn mowing and weeding that you've done, all that time you spent greeting people at church. You were tired, you came on Sunday morning and you weren't excited to be here, but you knew that you wanted to welcome somebody. So you, you worked your way up to it and you did it. What does God owe you for that? We usually don't speak that way explicitly, at least, but we do sometimes in subtle ways. Here, here's an example. Um, imagine that you're a single young adult and you want to get married. It, it can be very difficult to uh, withstand the temptation that comes that God owes you a spouse. God, when I was 12 years old, I committed to following you and, and following your rules, what you command about sex and dating, and I have. I've done it for 10 years, and now you owe me a spouse. You owe me a good marriage, God. That's sometimes the appeal we explicitly make when we, when we speak to, to teenagers about uh, uh, following God's plans for sexual purity. You'll have a good marriage. You'll have a good sex life with your spouse if you follow God's rules. If you don't follow God's rules, you're going to ruin your marriage. But here's the reward. Here's what God owes you. Sometimes... In this scenario, sometimes uh, uh, well-meaning people try to encourage their, their single friends and they say things like, God won't give you a spouse until you're content in him. That's terrible advice. And it doesn't even make any sense, right? As soon as you, by the Holy Spirit, put to death any desire you have for a spouse, God will give you one. It's great, right? That doesn't even make any sense. As if a, a, a spouse is a reward here. What does God owe you? Sometimes we think about what God owes us. Most often, I think, when we suffer, hard things come. I don't deserve this thing that's coming to my life because I'm a good Christian. I don't deserve to lose my job. I don't deserve to have this disease. I don't deserve to have my children shipwreck their lives because I was a good Christian parent. I don't deserve this. What does God owe you. It's not a healthy way to think about your relationship with God. I want to show that to you from the text. We'll come back to that question in a little bit. Here's a second way to be a miserable disciple. Number two, compare yourself with others. Compare yourself with others. Verse 12, notice what these 6 a.m. workers say. These, they, these who were hired, they said they complained to the landowner, these who were hired last Worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day, uh, burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, we should notice they're doing some comparison, right? 
But we should notice that what they're saying is, is true about the work that they have done. They have been in the field, in the vineyard, a long time. Hot day, a hot, long day. And what they're saying about their service here is actually true. Following Jesus is often hot, hard, costly work. It's often inconvenient. Mark Dever was recently talking about the tendency that some churches have to try to strategize, to reach out to people by making things in the church more convenient, their services more convenient. We, we meet at convenient times, we meet for a convenient length, and we have convenient services just for you, so you should come and be convenienced by Jesus. And he says the problem with that is that love, by definition, is inconvenient, you're not really loving someone if it's always convenient. And you're not really following Jesus if it's always convenient. That's, that's why at our church, we strive to make things as inconvenient as possible. So we're really after that. No, that what they're saying is true. Like, it's true that they have worked hard uh, and, and, and through hot, hard work. Uh, how, do you feel their objection here? This story is not, this parable Jesus told is not meant to guide you in running your business. I, as, if you're an, a business owner, this is not a model for you. He's thinking about serving God. And what does the Bible say about the objection that they raise? It reminds me actually of another objection that was raised in another parable that Jesus told. Remember what, they, what he said? We've worked hard and you've made us equal with those guys who haven't worked at all. It might remind you of another complaint offered by an older brother in a parable that you all know. There was a man, he had two sons. The youngest son wanted his share of the inheritance, so he took it and went off to, uh, and, and uh, spoiled it, used it all in wild living, and then came home desperate and needy and broke. And his father, when he saw him, was so happy to see him and welcome him home. They threw a party, a huge party, to welcome this wandering son home. And his older brother was out in the field that day. And when he came home, he heard the noise, the party noise from the house, asked the servant what was going on, heard about it, and he refused to go in the house. And here's the complaint that he offered to his father. Look at Luke 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Does that sound like the 6 a.m. workers? Pretty similar, right? I've been slaving away, and, and I haven't gotten anything out of this. Here's where comparison goes off the rails. It can go off the rails in the form of self-righteousness. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've got done for God and how much other people haven't in comparison to me. Look at how much better I am than they are. Self-righteousness. I deserve more than those slackers do. The other problem, other way that comparison can go off the rails is, is with envy. It's in this parable itself in verse 15. Uh, the landowner says to the 6 a.m. workers, 
Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Your translation might say jealous, or it might say, do you have an evil eye? It means envious. Are you envious because I'm so generous? They shouldn't have what they have. I should have what they have. I've been a faithful servant of God better than they have, and I should have that. Envy, self-righteousness. Interesting how those two can be related to a third thing, to despair. They've got this. I don't. Huh. I guess I'm not as good a servant as, as I thought I was. I'll never measure up. I don't deserve it. They do. Despair. Envious people, self-righteous people are not glad, grateful people. They are miserable people. And now we're going to turn to the crux of the matter. What's really supposed to deal with this envy and this self-righteousness? Number three, how to be a miserable disciple. Discredit the lavish generosity of God. Discredit the lavish generosity of God. God's generosity is really the point here, and it's what those 6 a.m. hires cannot see or will not see. Verses 14 and 15 talk about uh, the landlord's freedom to do what he wants. Take your pay and go, verse 14. I want, I will, I wish to give the one who has hired less the same as I gave you. I can be generous. Don't I have the right to do what I wish, I want, I will with my own money? interesting. One commentator says, if you put God and you take him and put him into any set of human circumstances, when he appears, he will always seem outrageously generous, ridiculously merciful. And that's what's happened here in this situation. Remember Peter's question, what are we going to get? And this parable says, Peter, don't think so much about what you're going to get because God is so generous that whatever you think you're going to get, God is lavishly more generous to give you way more than that. Don't negotiate or calculate what God owes you because you will always sell God short. He's so lavishly generous. Remember the differences. Verse 2, negotiate. They negotiated and got a denarius. Verse 4, though, the, the second group of workers, I will pay you whatever is right if God offers you the terms, I will give you whatever is right. Take him always, every time. When Haddon Robinson was president of Denver Seminary, the seminary needed a new phone system, and it was going to cost, I don't remember the exact number, let's say $20,000. So he went to a businessman in Denver who had been quite generous to the seminary over the years and sat down with him and explained the need. We need a new phone system at the school. It's not exciting, I know, but it's really important. And uh, it's going to cost $20,000. And the businessman said, well, how much would you like me to give? And Haddon Robinson said, well, could you give us $5,000? And the man said, sure. And he took his checkbook out and he wrote a check for $5,000 and handed it to Haddon Robinson. And as Haddon Robinson was leaving, the, the businessman said, you know, this was a very insulting conversation. And Had Robinson said, uh, really? I'm so sorry. What, what, why? And he said, you have insulted me two ways. Either you think I don't have $20,000 to give you, or you don't think that I'm willing to give you $20,000. You need $20,000. All you ask for is five. Do you think I don't have it? Or do you think I'm not willing to give it to you? Which one is it? Had Robinson, he, the businessman said, I would have gladly given you $20,000. If you'd asked me for $20,000, I would have given you $25,000. But you asked for five. There's your check. Take it and go. Haddon Robinson said, 
He was kind of hoping that the guy would have asked for the check back and written him another one, but he did not. It was a very expensive lesson to learn. God is lavishly generous. When you buy a house, when you buy a house, get all the details written down. You know, you get the mortgage and you'll sign pages and pages and pages of paper. And, and the documents and the agreements will be there and there'll be blanks that will have been filled in with specific numbers. And there'll be specific details about who does what and who's doing what. Make sure you fill all that stuff out and it's all accurate and right before you sign anything. Uh, uh, when Jeff Mindler and I signed the paperwork for our church's mortgage, we signed, it probably took us 45 minutes to sign all those pages. And, and everything had been filled in and checked and double checked. So it was all right. Everything was down on the paper. That's a good idea when you're taking out a mortgage, when you're buying a house. When it comes to God's work, sign the paper and let him fill the blanks in. Because he's more lavish than you can imagine. When I was a teenager, I had a job. I worked for my grandmother. She was the best boss I've ever had. I mowed her lawn every week, 45 minutes it took me to mow the lawn. And she way overpaid me. I mean, way overpaid me. I think that's what grandmas do. That's what my grandma taught me. I would spend the weekend with her every now and then, a couple times a year. I'd go over to the house. We'd hang out Friday night. We would eat pop, uh, go out for a fish fry because it was Western New York. And we would eat ice cream and uh, popcorn and watch the Dukes of Hazard. And then on Saturday, we'd hang out. And if there were any jobs around the house that needed to be done, she would ask and I would do them immediately because grandma pays big. My grandma was uh, uh, generous. She had a very specific budget for what she was going to spend for birthday presents for her grandchildren. She wanted to be fair. She was an upright woman. And uh, when my sister was two years old, she wanted a set of, or needed, a set of Holly Hobby sheets. If you don't know who Holly Hobby is, ask someone old, they'll tell you. So in those days, so you'd go to Kmart and you'd buy your Holly Hobby sheets. You could buy the fitted sheet and the flat sheet and the pillowcase separately. And the fitted sheet fit into grandma's budget for what she was going to spend for my sister's birthday. So she bought the fitted sheet. She came home. She wrapped it up and she gave it to my sister at the birthday party for her birthday. And as the birthday party was over, she pulled my mother aside and she said, I bought the flat one and the pillowcase too. They're already in the drawer washed and ready to go. My grandma was sneaky generous. (laughs) She was generous on the sly. She's the best boss I've ever had. God is lavishly generous. Lavishly generous. This passage tells us that the generosity of God has to loom large in your mind and your heart. It changes you. It's freeing. It's so freeing. It lifts the burden of sacrifice. Uh, Bob Smith was the interim pastor before I came. Uh, He was a retired pastor. God used him in this church greatly. He said to me a couple of times, I never hesitate to ask people to make sacrifices for Jesus' sake because I know you'll never regret what you give for Jesus' sake because God is so lavishly generous. It washes away when the generosity of God looms large in your mind. It washes away the temporary circumstances that that make you think, tempt you to think you're getting a raw deal. 
You have elevated temporary things in, in exchange for the lavish, eternal generosity of God. Remember, God has made promises he has yet to fulfill. Don't settle your accounts yet because God hasn't. It's freeing to think about the generosity of God. It's motivating. <laughs> My grandma did not have to ask me twice to do things around the house. It's motivating. Yes, I, I went in on this. <laughs> I'll do whatever you ask. Yes, it's comforting to think about the generosity of God because it puts sorrow into its proper perspective. When God withholds, when there is suffering or affliction or sorrow, it's not because God is being stingy or God is miserly. It's because God in his good plans is, is trying to provide you with what you need even more than what you think you need. It reminds me a little bit, uh, Luke was watching this week as I was walking through the living room, he was watching Karate Kid 2 on uh, television. <coughs> and it reminded, excuse me, it reminded me of a scene from uh, Karate Kid 1. If, if you haven't seen this movie, most of you have, I would imagine. It's about a teenage boy who uh, learns karate from his Japanese landlord, hence the name Karate Kid, so clever a title. And, and, and uh, Daniel shows up to Mr. Miyagi's house for his first day of karate lessons. And Mr. Miyagi doesn't teach him anything in the dojo. Instead, he sends him out to his backyard to do work. Uh, he does jobs for Mr. Miyagi over the next few days. He waxes all of Mr. Miyagi's cars and he paints Mr. Miyagi's fence and he sands Mr. Miyagi's deck. Hours and hours he works and works. And Mr. Miyagi is very specific about how he wants the wax put on and how the wax should go off. And he's very specific about how it's, the, the, the deck is supposed to be sanded and very specific about how the, the, the fence is to be treated. And, and, and after three days, Daniel's a little frustrated and he goes to Mr. Miyagi, when are we going to start working on karate? And then then Mr. Miyagi <gasps> reveals all, all the motions that Daniel has been doing very specifically have been ingrained in his mind so that when it comes time to use, to, to move in karate, he has the motions down already. I wonder what habits of thought and mind God is cultivating in your life right now. It appears that he's being miserly, but he's actually training you so that you can follow him faithfully. What does God owe you? How you answer that question reveals how God's generosity looms in your mind. What does God owe you? Most of you know the answer. If this were a class, I could say, class, what does God owe you? Don't say nothing. The answer is not nothing. What does God owe you? God owes you his wrath. God owes you justice because we are rebels against God, our creator. We have misused the things he has given us. We have mistreated one another. We have dishonored and disobeyed him. What does God owe us? He owes us his wrath. He owes us justice. He owes us punishment. But because God is rich in mercy, though he owes us his wrath, he gave us his son who lived that perfect life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die on the cross, bearing in this cosmic exchange, bearing the punishment that we owe for our sin. He died and rose again and ascended into heaven and gives life and forgiveness to all who will turn and receive it by faith. 
That's the lavish generosity of God, the great, abundant, amazing, overwhelming generosity of God. And you know what it does? It saves us from our sins and it delivers us from our own self-induced misery. Discredit it to your loss. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you how we need to hear this warning from the Lord Jesus. We praise you, God, because you are rich in mercy. It doesn't seem like we would need it, but even the psalmist warns us not to forget your benefits. We confess to you that we do. We confess that at times we um, credit you with stinginess or miserliness. Lord, sometimes the temptations in this world are great and sometimes our suffering and sorrow is so severe that, that we are tempted to credit you with neglect, miserliness. So we confess that to you and we ask you that you would work by your spirit in our minds and hearts that your lavish generosity would loom large that we might serve you freely and gladly. <laughs> There's a payday in this parable. We look forward to that payday that will come when the Lord Jesus returns. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of our Savior. Amen.